This evening I'd like to talk about open-heartedness. In meditation, what we do is the process of closing our eyes and turning inwardly. And it is so very, very important that that inner turning is not a turning away from anything, but that as we turn our attention inwardly, that we do come to know a growing sense of connectedness, of oneness, both within our own being and with the world around us. I feel that we hold within ourselves deep qualities of inner sensitivity. These, these qualities of sensitivity mean that we can't exclude from our consciousness a very deep awareness of the quality of the world that we live in. We are aware of the ecological crisis of our planet. We are aware of how much pain and grief and despair is the daily companion of too many people. We are aware that we live in a world where there are simply too many victims. That quality of awareness within ourselves also acquaints us very deeply with the patterns and the tendencies within our own conditioning, our own makeup, that can so easily lead to pain and lead to alienation and lead to conflict in the relationships we have with those that we love, in our relationship to ourselves. There are many times when we are deeply touched by the pain we are aware of, deeply moved by the conflict while we are aware of. And in those times when we are touched and moved, we often find ourselves searching the corners of our minds for solutions, for ways to bring about the end of pain, for ways to bring conflict to an end. And many of us, many of you do more than search, many of you actively engage in your lives with trying to find ways to contribute to a greater sense of peace in the world. And yet even the most engaged peacemaker knows on a very deep level within themselves the importance of knowing the art of peacemaking. We know in some way that no matter how complex or how seemingly effective the solutions are that our minds produce, that they're only going to be deeply effective and deeply transforming if our actions, if our relationships have a foundation upon open-heartedness, have a foundation in loving-kindness and in compassion, that those very ingredients emerging within ourselves are actually the keys to bringing about the end of pain both inwardly and in our world. And I want to talk a little bit about the word open-heartedness because I don't want to confuse it with some of the words that become a little cliched in our culture. 
the word openness is often given very profound significance. You know, at times we are, our worth is even evaluated by how open we are. And one of the greatest accusations that can be leveled against us is that we're really not very open. And this is somehow some very great sign of, of inadequacy within ourselves. And yet sometimes openness can be used very superficially. Just the capacity to release and express our feelings doesn't necessarily mean that we are terribly open. It means we're able to express and release our feelings. And our world is filled with people who have no trouble expressing and releasing their feelings. If you see people walking down the street, you know, um, kicking a dog or shouting at their neighbors, they obviously have no trouble releasing their feelings and expressing them. doesn't necessarily mean a great deal of openness. Even in the midst of speaking on very profound levels about what we are, emotions, about what we feel, or listening to another, our minds can still be operating with evaluations, with judgments and comparisons. That capacity to be very articulate is not necessarily the capacity to be very present, nor to know a great deal of open-heartedness. Neither is open-heartedness a pervading sense of agreeability. Again, there's often this confusion that open-heartedness or openness is somehow the ability to say yes to everything. But there are also times when our tendency to agree to everything, to say yes to everything, is based on nothing more than the fear of what will happen if we say no. Is at times based upon not really having some very firm ground within ourselves, knowing when it is time to say no, knowing when it is time to say yes. It often doesn't means that we actually don't even know our own limits, nor know how to respond with wisdom. Once when I was in India, we lived in a, an intensive retreat community. And it is an unfortunate fact that these intensive retreat communities are often starved of love. You know, you bring a child into an intensive retreat community and they get all the attention they could possibly ever dream of having. And we didn't have any children in this community, but we adopted a puppy. And this puppy, of course, had much, so much affection lavished upon it. It was almost love to death. There was always somebody stroking it. And for a while, this little puppy was wonderful. And then this little puppy started to get weird. It started, you know, you'd stroke it, and it would bark at you instead of kind of wriggling around in delight. And it got more and more that you would stroke it, and it might even bite your ankles or bite your hand. And at first, you know, the automatic response of everybody was, oh, you know, this poor little Indian puppy, you know, came from a very bad background, you know, we just need to give it more love and more friendliness. So we got more and more affection and more and more strokes and pats. And instead of getting better, as it should have done, it got weirder and weirder and weirder. And eventually it got to the point, of course, where it was almost attacking anyone who came near it, this poor little puppy. 
And again, there was the difficulty acknowledging that maybe there was something wrong until someone decided to take it to a vet. And the vet said, well, I think the dog has rabies. And we thought, oh, you know, the dog maybe has rabies. So, you know, we took it back home because what can you do anyway? And, you know, we kept it tied up and people used to sit around in a circle and do loving-kindness meditation and take it for walks. The last thing this dog wanted, if you can imagine a potentially rabid dog, was to go for a walk. It took three people to take this poor puppy for a walk because it had to be dragged every step of the way. Then took it to another vet who said, of course, it doesn't have rabies. So that meant more and more people went, you know, convinced that it was just a lack of love and stroking it. And took it back to the next, the first vet who said, yes, I think it does. This went on and on for a period of days. Meanwhile, everybody was trying their best to sustain their loving-kindness meditation. Until eventually, somebody thought, well, we should really maybe take it to a vet who knows. So the dog was put in a taxi along with the 18 yogis who'd been bitten in a number of other taxis who then went in a procession 200 miles to the nearest Western hospital. And of course, the puppy was dead by the time we got it there, and it did indeed have rabies, which meant that those 18 yogis also had to do this other procession every day of the week for two weeks to get these injections. But all the time, there was this constant sense that there can't be anything wrong out there. It's something wrong with us, or it's something wrong with our relationship to what is happening. And this kind of, not a strength of action and not a clarity of action, but instead coming out of the values which had been adopted, this kind of markiness and, and mushiness of, of response, of not being able simply to say very clearly, at some point, clear action is really needed. And open-heartedness, I feel, doesn't mean any of that kind of waveringness. It means a quality of strength and a quality also that is able to manifest itself in very direct response. What I mean by open-heartedness is a very deep connection within ourselves with the qualities of life, the qualities of being that are actually life-enhancing a deep inner connection with those inner qualities that contribute to well-being, to clarity, to wisdom and compassion, both inwardly and outwardly. To me, open-heartedness is a very immediate, deep connection with what generosity is, with what loving-kindness actually is, with what compassion actually is. It is also the capacity to be touched on a very deep level. It is the capacity to be moved and also the ability to respond. You know, it doesn't really matter, it seems, how many spiritual experiences we have or how bulging our portfolio is of meditation, retreats, and insights. It seems very clear that unless we know that inner capacity to be touched and deeply moved, that our practice has yet to begin. That unless we know really how to respond with compassion, we are still struggling really to begin on this path.
unless we know how to respond with sensitivity and how to respond with love, we are still living in a relationship with the world where our mind and our evaluations and our comparisons are acting as an ongoing filter between the world and other people and ourselves. Open-heartedness is founded upon receptivity, being able to listen, truly being able to listen inwardly and listen to others. Feel being able to listen, we grow increasingly receptive to the messages of our own bodies, our own feelings, our own thoughts. And as we listen deeply, the messages that we receive actually affirm a fundamental oneness with all of life. When we listen inwardly to pain, to the dynamics of grief, to the dynamics of despair, to the process of joy, if we can truly listen in a receptive way, we are listening to the processes and the dynamics that take place with every single living being. And we are able to be touched and we are able to be moved on much more of a cellular level than just on the basis of what should be. You know, there was a mystic who once said, of what use is the knowing mind if the heart is blind. And I feel this is so true for us, that we are very good at collecting information and accumulating knowledge and having so many opinions. And yet one of the hardest things for us to do in our lives is actually to be able to listen without judgment, to be able to listen without the filter of conditioning and this, I feel, is really what the path of meditation is all about. It's discovering that open-heartedness inwardly and outwardly. Knowing how to give and how to receive. How to love and how to care. When we connect with open-heartedness, we taste a sense of oneness. And that is a priceless gift. It is a challenge to us to discover open-heartedness. Sometimes we listen inwardly and all we hear are our opinions and all we hear are our standpoints and our judgment. And it's so easy to feel very despairing. And we must also be very careful of not creating a goal out of open-heartedness because then that becomes another form of striving and even, even another form of abusing ourselves. And I feel if we look within our lives and look within our own life experience, we do understand that open-heartedness is not something that is new to us. We have many experiences and many times in our lives of knowing deeply that quality of open-heartedness. It might be simply that we encounter a friend who's really in trouble, that they call us on the phone and they're really in deep conflict. 
and something shifts inwardly and we're able to be so totally present and just totally listen without the immediate thought of giving good advice or you know talking about our own experiences with the same conflict somehow there can be that shift where we can be still and just be totally present for another person it can happen too in nature that we can go for a walk around here and in one moment our mind can be chattering and busy and there can be that other kind of shift where we seem to still inwardly and when we see we see so totally and with such vividness and when we listen we listen wholeheartedly and the sense of distance between inner and outer just seems to disappear and even as a kind of we feel the wind on our cheek it seems to be a wind that moves right through us sometimes it happens very unpredictably that we can be busily going to work and we suddenly see someone on a street corner who needs help and we're able we're, it's an immediate response it's an intuitive response that we're able to stop and we're ha- able to help someone across the road who actually needs that help or it happens here that a child falls down and there's not that thought of oh it's somebody else's child you know it's not my business there's just that immediate response of of helping of responding of being there very totally those moments when they happen have a kind of magical quality those moments of stillness when they happen they make a very special impression upon our consciousness they move us deeply in those moments the dramas that we may be involved in the busyness that we may be involved in all of it suddenly is able just to stop and we are really there and really present and we experience really a dramatic change in our consciousness in those moments we experience a movement from preoccupation from busyness from involvement to really a sense of lightness and sensitivity and spaciousness and those moments are precious to us we give and we don't think about praise and we know that our sense of being enriched comes not so much from what we do but our sense of being enriched comes from the quality of connection that we actually have in that moment and yet those moments can be very random they may be very rare they seem to be entirely unpredictable and we experience just as many times their opposites when the same friend calls us up with the same troubles just as deeply troubled and we answer the phone almost with a sense of oh no not again you know and even as they're talking we're writing our shopping list or wondering when they're going to get off the phone and we know that we simply can't be there there's this filter we we go out for the, exactly the same walk and we move through the woods and we return and realize that we have seen nothing and listened to nothing and wonder even what happened in those moments of movement and we got take the same path to work and we meet the same elderly person maybe trying to cross the street 
And we, you know, our mind is moving with, you know, brother, haven't you learned anything, you know? You oughtn't to be out on this street, you know? If you can't handle it, you ought to stay home. Or we see the child fall down and it's, you know, why were they so clumsy, you know? Didn't they look where they were going? And the mind is kind of punishing and judging and evaluating. And it's not that we may not give, but we may give with reluctance. And it may be a begrudging kind of giving. And in those moments, what we are actually tasting is separation. It is a taste of separation. It is a taste of distance. And it is painful to us. In those moments of immediate response, we do cross the boundaries of our personal world. In the moments of dis- distance, we find ourselves very much locked within the boundaries of our preoccupations and our evaluations. In the moments of oneness, we find that there is a spontaneous generosity, a spontaneous love and compassion. We taste open-heartedness. But yet, in those moments of separation, we know that we're not enriched. Instead, we feel this inner burden of how things should be, of not wanting even to be disturbed, of not wanting to be intruded upon, a feeling of simply being bothered. You know, and there is this strange paradox that operates within us. We deeply value those moments of open-heartedness, those moments of connection. We appreciate how enriching they are. And we know inwardly, in those times when we're really despairing in our lives, what we benefit most from is from the person or the people who can be totally present for us. It doesn't necessarily matter what advice they give us or what they offer us, but the fact of somebody being able to be totally there for us is incredibly healing. You know, some years ago I went to California and um, the airlines lost my luggage and I had in it a manuscript of my book I was writing. It was the only copy. And I also had within it three years' worth of work, of written work. And the airlines lost it and just never came back. And it was interesting, people's responses, because, you know, and really what was able, you know, because I was sort of numb with shock, you know. What I was also about to teach a retreat for 100 people, you know, and I didn't have my bits of paper, and I felt sort of dysfunctional. And people's response, you know, one person would say to me, well, you sure learn something from this, don't you? You know, haven't you ever heard of Xerox machines, you know? Another person would say, well, this is a real test of your practice, isn't it? Now you really find out how much equanimity you have. Another person would say, well, you know, this must feel absolutely terrible. And that was the point, you know, I can actually, could actually sense of someone being there, of actually understanding that there was something happening within me, some sense of loss, that actually didn't need all the good advice, you know, and, and how good it was for my practice and all the rest of it, just sufficient just to be there. And we appreciate those times when people can be present for us. And yet at the same time, no matter how much we value that capacity to be present, there's something within us too that often craves for distance, that actually finds some security and some sanctuary in separation. 
And distance is a means or seems to be a means of preserving our own safety. It seems to be a means of preserving our emotional and our psychological safety. No matter how painful distance is, at least we feel protected and sometimes we feel familiar within the confines of the, of the limitations or the armor that we build up for ourselves. And certainly distance is heavily encouraged in our culture. You know, we are encouraged to avoid anything that is at all unpleasant. And some of our very first learnings are about finding routes of escape from the unpleasant. How not to be exposed to it, how not to have to cope with it, either through consumption or through distraction or through entertainment. And we learn through following those avenues that the unpleasant is deeply threatening to us. So we learn to tune it out. We learn to create distance between anything that even has the potential to be unpleasant. You know, at times we hear about the suffering in the world. It's so easy to reduce it to statistics. It feels much safer. We may know people who need a great deal of care and a great deal of attention, and yet somehow it's hard to find the energy to extend it. And sometimes we may say, well, you know, I have so much stuff of my own to work out. I really don't have the energy. But we learn it inwardly, too. We learn to distance ourselves from our own being, from anything that's unpleasant inwardly, through avoidance and through suppression. And yet that distancing creates separation, it creates fragmentation, and it creates conflict. For different reasons we pursue distance. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of being vulnerable. And we equate vulnerability with weakness, with the inability to receive. Sometimes we're afraid that if we're really touched by the pain in the world around us, or our own pain, that we'll just feel powerless and ineffective. Sometimes we're afraid of just being overwhelmed by the weight of pain that exists around us. And so, in that fear, we can become really masters of avoidance, constantly avoiding the unpleasant. But the world doesn't really hear about our messages of we want to avoid. It keeps bringing us these situations which are hard, which are difficult, which are painful. And we learn that so many of our strategies, so many of our formulas for avoidance, it's like building sandcastles before an incoming tide. They're constantly washed away. And I feel at some point we do understand that there really isn't any true safety in distance. And understand the importance of being able to open to everything in our lives, whether it is painful or whether it is pleasant. And learn, perhaps understand, that open-heartedness is a way of living that actually brings meaning to our lives. It's a very important point, because that desire to avoid the unpleasant, that attachment to safety, can so easily be carried to spirituality. You know, and sometimes people in meditation are accused of being very narcissistic. 
And often that's a very superficial accusation. And yet at times it is possible to engage in a kind of spirituality that's actually defensive. So that as we close our eyes in meditation, we do also close our hearts and look for a sanctuary through our meditation or through our spirituality in which we're protected from pain. And you see it in so many ways, particularly in in the expression of so very many common spiritual views. You know, you hear the expression that everything is empty. That seems to be an excuse to distance oneself from the world or to have aversion for it. You hear that judgment is negative and that becomes almost a paralysis of response. Once someone choked here in the dining room and 50 yogis went listening, listening for a number of minutes before someone got it together to get up and help them. And that doesn't mean that spirituality has nothing to do with a paralysis of our capacity to respond. Sometimes detachment is simply interpreted as being non-involvement. And equanimity is interpreted as it being okay not to be moved and not to be touched by anything. And it's so easy to use spirituality as a distancing mechanism. You know, we may say we're very aware of the pain in the world and practicing boundless loving kindness for all beings. And yet it's totally true that it's easier to live a th- love a thousand beings in theory than it is to love one person in actuality. And it's easy to have an intellectual compassion for the whole world, far easier than to have compassion for one single person who threatens us or challenges us in some way. But this distancing, it doesn't work. It's a very superficial kind of armor. And it's a denial of love and a denial of open-heartedness. And yet we need to see that these cliches and these justifications, they have some history. We have inherited, many of us, a spiritual heritage which basically has divorced itself from the world. And we see even as parents, there is no lineage for this. There is no tradition for this. There is no lineage of one parent guru to another parent guru. Spirituality has traditionally divorced itself from social interaction, from relationship, from political responsibility. And yet in that divorce, spirituality, I feel, has not contributed in any way to the end of suffering. And in some ways, that absence of involvement can be said to have contributed to the perpetuation of suffering. In that separation of spirituality from the world, all that is worldly often assumes a very negative association. And yet when we need to see that we are the world, we live within our bodies, we are part of all form, We live within our feelings, therefore we are emotional. We live within our bodies, therefore we are sexual. We participate in structures around us 
Therefore, we are also political. We are also spiritual, I feel, when we are able to embrace everything within ourselves as being a vehicle to awakening. When we live with an open-hearted relationship to every part of our lives as being of an avenue, a vehicle to being more awake and more conscious in our lives. This healing of division, just as the healing of conflict, is made possible through open-heartedness, through the open-heartedness that we can extend first to ourselves, that we can equally extend to all others in our world. And open-heartedness begins with this capacity and this willingness to be present just with what is. It's so important to see that peace is not the absence of the unpleasant, and that peace is not the absence of the challenging, but that peace is the capacity to be with what is without prejudice. When we can be with what is without prejudice, we find some serenity and balance, and we find the beginning of understanding. How can our meditation, how in our meditation, can we close our eyes and yet open our hearts? How can our meditation be a sanctuary of stillness and not a sanctuary of protectiveness? How can we learn, basically, to listen to ourselves and so able to listen to the world around us? How can we learn to be touched and to be moved and yet not to be overwhelmed? How can we learn to be equanimous and strong and yet not to be invincible? And this is the whole balance that we need to find in our practice how to develop at the same time an incredible sense of strength and balance that is also combined with a profound open-heartedness and a profound receptivity and compassion. It begins inwardly with a certain quality of receptivity, seeing the futility of our desires to control and to manipulate and just to be willing to be present. When we are willing to be present within ourselves, we get in touch with what is fundamentally important to us. We are aware of our yearning to be free from fear and conflict. We are aware of our inner yearning to live in peace, to live with sensitivity. The messages that we hear inwardly are the messages of all life, the messages that we need to honor. Our open-heartedness begins with generosity, learning how to extend generosity to ourselves. We see we have the option of being judgmental, of being harsh, of being brutal. Our awareness also gives us the option of extending generosity, of open-heartedness, of acceptance, of spaciousness, the willingness to be with ourselves as we are in any moment, and seeing that that is the foundation of transformation. We need to learn how to be loving in our practice. Again, it's so easy to fill up our practice as it is easy to fill up our lives with all the shoulds and the expectations 
and the striving for goals and the striving to be perfect and the pride that's involved in all of that. It's also possible in this practice to learn to embrace everything that arises, the quality of gentleness, the quality of compassion, the quality just of receptivity, not always of having to direct and to change and to manipulate, but to see how much organic change is born of acceptance and how much organic growth and change is actually born of love. Also see how much letting go is actually born of loving-kindness. We need to learn how to be compassionate too, recognizing that there are imperfections, recognizing there are things that we do, and yet being able to, that we regret, and yet being able to extend that sense of forgiveness, that deep inner forgiveness that is free from expectation, that allows us to be, that allows us to open. Learning how to be open-hearted in our practice through generosity, through loving-kindness, through compassion. We develop an environment inwardly where there's great sensitivity, where there's a great receptivity, not only inwardly, but to everyone around us. And that open-heartedness connects us with life. It connects us with the qualities inwardly which are life-enhancing. And it empowers us to manifest those qualities of generosity and forgiveness and compassion in every area of our lives. And finding open-heartedness within ourselves, we find that we're able to live in the spirit of open-heartedness learning just to be present with what is, with sensitivity, with an openness of heart, with the capacity to listen. And that in itself, so simple and yet such a challenge for us, that in itself is really what this practice is all about. That as we listen inwardly, we listen to the sounds of the universe. And that is the foundation of healing. It is the foundation, too, of connectedness. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings live with generosity. May all beings live with open-heartedness. We have just two, three minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break.
This talk was given by Christina Feldman at Insight Meditation Society in August 1989. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.